Good morning. How's everyone? Good, good. My name's Eric. If I haven't met you, uh, I'd love to get to know you, answer any questions you might have out in the courtyard. We have a welcome area where we'd love to help you get connected to our church, answer any questions you might have, as well as give you a gift. A um, couple announcements is, uh, before we get started. One is next week after this service, after second service in the activity center, we're going to have a church family business meeting. And so the agendas are in the back on your way out on my right, and when you turn around, it'll be your right. And we're doing two important things uh, just to keep in mind. One, we're going to reaffirm uh, the eldership of one of our elders, Joe Appleton, for his second term. And then the second is to vote on a pastoral candidate, Chris Moore, for the job of family pastor. So we uh, encourage you to go to that and just celebrate that with us. And then the second thing is on July uh, 7th and 8th, so it'll be Friday and Saturday, Vody Bauckham will be here in Bakersfield, and Friday night is a free event to everyone, so uh, invite whoever you want, and then Saturday will be more like a conference, it'll be all day, and so you do need to register for that, and there's lunch provided and all that fun stuff, and essentially he's just going to walk through um, just the, the wokeism in our culture and in our schools and help us process that with a biblical worldview, and Justin Peters will have a session as well, and so I just encourage you to, to come to that and just put um, some more information and tools in your hands to combat the culture. And so if you're in town, we'd love for you to join us with that. And with that, we're going to come back into Matthew. And we're in chapter 9. We're going to finish out chapter 9. And uh, just as we've been working through Matthew, something that's I think God has pressed on my mind and in my heart was uh, when I was in Romania, I was uh, preaching at a gypsy church. And I, I preached through the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. And um, the pastor there is a man in his 60s, and uh, he was very gracious, and just, he was just thanking me, and uh, he said something I'll never forget, and he said, you know, we can never hear enough um, how important it is to be a citizen of heaven, and he says, well, we live here on earth, you know, we get really confused, and this is the, the ultimate reminder, and he was talking about Matthew 5, not me, and uh, so that just pressed in my mind, you know, we have a, a people uh, in the gypsies that are very hated, treated poorly. And his thought is, oh man, we need to act like Christ in his kingdom while we're here. And so that's essentially the last piece here. What you're going to see is he's going to go through again these last kind of pieces of being a citizen of heaven, right? Of being a part of the kingdom. Because chapter 10, he's going to send them out into the world. And he says, hey, go and share. And so what we're going to do is look at what are these last pieces that Jesus kind of puts on top. And we're, we're forever learning until heaven or until Jesus takes us home. And, but it's important that these are central truths that we need to know as a citizen of heaven, as a child of God, as a member uh, of his kingdom. And so we're going to pray through that. And I just pray that you would uh, be encouraged and uh, just see all that God has for us in the text. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, uh, we thank you so much that you love us and that you're with us. And we just pray that uh, your word would be taught, that we would grow to love you and want to worship you and know you, uh, that you'd reveal yourself through the text in a way that encourages us and challenges us and teaches us. Uh, and ultimately, we pray for a heart that just loves you and is thankful and grateful uh, for the work of Christ on the cross on our behalf. And so we just pray for your words and not mine. Uh, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Okay, so we're in Matthew chapter 9, we're in uh, verse 27. We're going to look at three characteristics to be a member of the kingdom. And these aren't the only three, but these are just three more as we're weaving it through. And uh, very important, if, you have, if you're a note taker, get your hand ready, stretched out to go. If you're a typer, turn off your notifications and get ready to type uh, because there's a lot of Old Testament references. And so what we want to do is put together the Bible as one story, the Old Testament work together, and we want to see that so that we can really celebrate all that's happening in the text, okay? So first characteristic, first thing is to believe, right? It's the first thing you see in this text. And what you see is two blind men that have come to Christ. And what is Jesus' question to them in verse 28? Do you believe? Do you believe? And they answer yes. And he says, well, your faith has done well for you. And so to believe, this is important, very important, because, you know, in our culture, we're taught, hey, if you said a prayer at VBS and you raised your hand and you said, I believe you're a Christian, you don't have to go to church again, you don't have to listen, you just said the prayer, you said I do, and you're good. Um, that's what it doesn't mean to believe. Belief is connected to the idea of faith, action. And so that belief produces action. Um, you see this clearly laid out in the book of James in chapter 2, verse 19, uh, where he says, you know, do you believe? Even the demons believe and shudder and have fear. And that should be one of the most frightening verses in all the Bible. Even the demons believe. And so there has to be more than an intellectual agreement or acknowledgement that Jesus lived and died. Uh, more than an intellectual, yeah, I'm a sinner. Yes, Jesus is a savior but it's a belief that produces action. And that action is gonna be found in the way you see Matthew say, this is how members of the kingdom believe. It's how they act, it's how they participate. And so what we need to know is that these believers had action. First thing I want you to see is that they know they need a savior. They know they need someone greater than themselves. This is why Jesus says they came to heal the sick. And so members of the kingdom, they know I'm sick and I need the only physician who can heal me is Jesus. And so there's that belief, right, that I'm a sinner and I need healing and only Jesus can do that. And often what you're gonna see, the commonality in, in these people is that they're outcasts, they're isolated, they're hopeless, helpless, rejected, unloved. Uh, they're of all different ethnicities, male, female, rich, poor. But the commonality is that they have a need and they're at a point where they're saying only Jesus can do this. This is why they're crying out in desperation uh, to Jesus. And the other part I want you to see is in this belief is, is very important to understand there is a pain driven in this. There's a pain that I cannot fix. And you're crying out to Jesus as the only one who can make you whole, make you complete, forgive you, give you your purpose, give you your plan for life and and. and get you into heaven is through Jesus. So this belief, it's huge. It, it requires action. Like right now, you guys are believing in the pews because you're sitting in them, right? You're trusting that they'll hold you up, hold your weight, and not let you down. And each time another person gets on there, you're believing the pew is gonna hold you up and not let you down. You can't just stand in the back and point at the pews and say, I believe they work, but never sit in them, okay? So there's a cause in effect. And so it's important we realize that, that belief is more than just assent or acknowledgement. Belief is fully trusting the full weight 
and work of Jesus. And then that belief produces or causes us to act like citizens of heaven. And so as you, you think through it, I mean, this is terrifying, but it's true, is that when we don't believe in the power of Christ, the authority of Christ, our faith is less than that of a demon's. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? The Bible is very clear. Even the demons believe and shudder. Even the demons know that Christ has authority and Christ has power. That's what you've seen through Matthew so far. Jesus commands. They submit to what he says. And so in those moments, our faith is less than that of a demon. So how does that shape us? At a very bare minimum, never, ever, ever doubt his authority. When things in your life don't add up and don't line up, never go into a place where you think God is not able. If you're going to wrestle, wrestle through, how can I trust you because you are able? And, and wrestle through, how can I trust? And how can I accept what you have done? Doubting and struggling, that's normal, but we want to do it in the right way. We want to do it in a way that doesn't change that God can do all things. Believing is believing he can do everything. This is why people come with him with all kinds of requests because he can literally do anything. That's the point he's making over and over and over again. And this is right before he sends out the disciples. So he showed them everything. He can control nature. He knows your thoughts. He can heal the sick. He can give sight to the blind. He can rebuke demons. He can control the wind, the ocean, the sea, all of these things. So when you believe, you believe in his absolute authority. And then that belief causes you, point two, to follow. I want you to catch this because always there's a cause and effect. They believe, they come, they acknowledge. And then what do they do in verse 31? They go out and share. So there's this action and what's happening from the belief. And so the next kind of point is that you would follow and I want you to see over and over again, verse 27, and the blind men followed him. As you're following Jesus, and, and as you look at the disciples following Jesus, I want you to see they're learning something at each point, at each place. They're learning more about who God is. And they're learning more about how Christ, Jesus, fits who God is. Because if we don't get Jesus right, if we, if we miss that, you get a cult and you get heresy. This is why so many cults or heresies, you look at it, they get Jesus, you know, he was just a guy. He was not God. That Jesus can't save you. He can't rise from the dead. They say, oh, he was just God, but he was never a man. He was a hologram. That Jesus can't pay for your sin because he was never human. He can't sympathize with you as your high priest. He never walked and lived. And so it's important, as you see in this text, they're wrestling through who is the true identity of Jesus. As we learn these names and titles and references, it helps us approach him properly, pray to him properly, and be sent out by him properly. And so one of the, the points you have to appreciate in the text is there's this huge tension that they don't understand Jesus or they understand a part of him. And Jesus is trying to get them to see the full breadth and scope and width of who he is. Okay, so one of the things we need to understand, son of David, Look at verse 27, son of David, 
Notice that they give him that title. Why? Because they saw him as a physical king. Son of David, David, first king of Israel, right? Or first Christian, we should say, after Saul, right? He's the promised king from that line. And so to see him as a king is important. Why? Because it adds to understanding why are they so frustrated with Jesus? They're frustrated with Jesus because they are very aware of the promises in the Old Testament that God would send a physical king to rule from Israel, from Jerusalem, and that all nations would come down and be ruled from that throne. Okay, I'm going to read to you real quick. Write this down. I'm going to go through it, but it's important you understand how these fit together because they're thinking here, 2 Samuel 7, 13 through 16. It says, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish a throne of his kingdom. For how long? Ever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits inequity, right? He bears our inequity. I will discipline him with the rod, bears the wrath of God, with stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away uh, from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So they're sitting there in Israel. Rome has occupied them, controls them. They pay taxes. They don't have the land God was promised. So they're looking at Jesus going, why aren't you on the throne? Imagine Jesus comes amongst us and walks. And we're like, you're going to be in control of all things? He's like, yes. We're like, then could you please fix the presidential thing? And he's like, no. Like, but you're here. You could just get rid of him, be in charge. And he's like, no. Would you be frustrated? You're lying if you wouldn't be, okay? Yes, absolutely you'd be frustrated. And this is their frustration. Son of David, take the throne, let's go. And Jesus is trying to teach them something very, very important. Yes, I am that king, but now is not the time. So that's a subtlety in the text. How do we know that? I want you to catch a few details. What does Jesus say in verse 30? And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, see, that no one knows about it. That's a peculiar verse, isn't it? Why would Jesus say, don't tell anyone about this little encounter we had, which they don't listen to, which I don't know is a good thing or a bad thing, right? Because 31 says they spread his fame through the district. But here's the point. You read John chapter 6, you see that Jesus is saying that he did not want them to try to appoint him as king. Why? Because it wasn't the time. John 6, 14 through 15, you can read through that, write it down. Now was not the time. This is why at the end, after Jesus has been resurrected, he's with the disciples, Acts chapter one, they say, Lord, is now the time to restore the kingdom? And he says, that's what the father has fixed. He's saying that will come, but now is not the time. See, part of following Jesus is realizing his time frame his kingdom, his way. And to think that the Bible wouldn't understand that we live in a time where we're going, really, God? Is, could it get any worse? Aren't you gonna do anything? Do you not care? Are you watching? Do I have to do something? That very tension lives within the text. You have Jews 
begging in frustration for Jesus just to take the throne. Give them back the land. Be in charge. This is why they're fighting with Jesus. This is why Peter, who's seen Jesus work miracles, is telling Jesus he can't go to the cross. No, you can't do that. Can you imagine telling the one who can do miracles he doesn't know what he's doing? We do it all the time. So yeah, we can. Why? Because they had something else in mind. As I was once taught this principle, and I think it holds true, is that God is never late and he's never early. He's always on time. This is part of what it means to follow Jesus. A disciple is a learner. You're learning his timing, not our timing. You have to trust him. And that can be very frustrating as a believer. You have a situation with your health, and you're like, how long, O Lord? And he's saying, not now. And he might say, not till heaven. Your marriage is in shambles. Your kids are in shambles. Your finances are in shambles. And you're like, God, why not now? And God's saying, wait. Or he might say, no. See, this is part of what it means to be a citizen of heaven. You understand his timing. Even something as beautiful as spreading a work that Jesus just did, by our minds, we're like, how can you not share that? He's saying, no, 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 now's not the time. Even in the things we think are obvious, are not obvious. And so part of being a follower of Christ is saying, God, I trust your timing. I trust your decisions. I trust your ways are higher than my ways. That's Isaiah. Also within this, you're following Jesus. And what are you seeing as we get to each stop? Sometimes you come to the text, and you're like, oh my gosh, look at this. Look at verse 35. It says he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and he's healing every disease and every affliction. In some spots, he heals everything that's there. And then other times, people are begging for healing and he leaves. Read Mark chapter six. He's like, nope, nothing's gonna happen here. Why is it on one hand he heals and on the other hand he walks away? This is a part of his timing. This is part of his decree. This is part of accepting. Sometimes he says yes, and sometimes he says no. Either way, he's the king, son of David. He's the king. He's Lord. This is who he is. And as you follow him, you see his rule in your life over this. So the disciples are learning slowly and slowly and slowly. Why is this important? Because chapter 10, they're going to be sent out, and they need to know who they're being sent out by, what they're being sent out for, and what they're supposed to do as they're sent out. So this is a part of their growing in their faith, their maturity, and their understanding of Jesus is that he doesn't heal everyone. He is a king. His timing is not your timing. And you need to have faith. You need to trust him. You need to trust that he can do anything and that if he doesn't, he's still a good shepherd. He has a good reason. Pick that up in verse 36 because it's saying that he had compassion on them. He sees that they're sheep without a shepherd and they're being harassed and they're helpless. He cares about the sheep. And so the fact that he says no doesn't make him unable or unloving. It makes him a king who knows more than we do. You see, within these titles, they teach us. What's he saying in 36? He's the good shepherd. He's the good shepherd. And what's he doing? He's drawing back Ezekiel 34, Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 23, 
that Israel has been left to the wolves and the shepherds have stopped teaching the word of God, stopped teaching and they're being devoured and they're sick and they're hurting. And he's saying, I'm gonna send the true shepherd, his son, Jesus, and he's gonna bind them up. He's gonna heal them, protect them and send them on their way. See, part of following Jesus is that you would experience this, that he would clean you up, heal your soul, and redirect you on the right way. As you follow, you learn the various titles of who he is. He's savior, he saved you from your sin. He's king, he's in charge. He's the son of God, he knows more than you. As you follow, you learn all of these things. What's the purpose of learning all these things? So that you can point three, labor. That you could labor for Christ in the harvest. You would labor for the king. And for order, in order for us to be laborers, we have to know who we're following. And we have to know what it means to follow him. We have to understand that sometimes he doesn't do the things we want to do. And sometimes he isn't who we think he is. And even though he's not who we think he is, or he's better than we think he is, and we don't understand the circumstances, he's worth trusting. Through following, these become the things that we have now the ability to share because we're being formed in our following. So this is so important as you see the disciples went through this process. They wanted a king and Jesus was a king, but he said, not now. He said, not now. The father, he knows, he's fixed it, it'll happen, you need to trust him. And until then, you need to do exactly what he says. You're a citizen of heaven. Here's how you act. He's your king, take your orders. He's your shepherd, let him take care of you. That's important because as you labor in the vineyard or in the harvest, you understand what it's like. There's these extreme moments with Jesus where one moment, you know, when he calls Peter Satan, that's not exactly the kindest, funnest moment, is it? It's not a nice term, but you know what it's like to be rebuked by the king and say, no, that's wrong. And then sternly be redirected out of love. He's the good shepherd. You also know what it's like to be Peter, that you've utterly failed Christ. You've denied him. And he tends to your wounds and says, I'm going to build my church on this rock. I'm going to tell you to feed my sheep. I'm going to use you in the kingdom. You also know what it's like to be put back together, loved, redirected, and shaped and sent out. See, through the following, you now know how to labor. It gives you the truth of understanding. This is who Christ is. You have to know about him. What's one of the first things you see as laborers is anyone who meets Jesus shares Jesus. That's the beauty of verse 31. They spread his fame. Why? Because he healed them. You can't meet Jesus and not be changed. The primary role of a laborer is to share the work of God through Christ. Now, I want you to think about this. This is huge for us because it actually fits our culture very nicely and very neatly. Because what are they sharing? They're sharing their experience. I was once blind, now I see. You can't argue with that. See, our culture is all about your experience and what you've done 
and people can't take away. No one can argue that you once were and now you are. And what does Jesus say is the bigger miracle? Forgiveness of sins or the physical healing? So if you would share that you were blind and you were crippled, but now you walk, but now you see, now you can talk, how much more should you share? And now I get to go to heaven. See, a laborer shares the work of what he's done. And what you kind of see in here is that there's going to be this opposition within our sharing. And what do you do with that opposition? You bring it to Christ. This is what you see with the, two, with the demons and the mute man. It says that he was brought to Christ. Someone brought him there. Why? Because they knew their king had authority over all things. and He cast out that demon. As a Christian, you're comforted. Why? Because you know that a house can't be occupied by two masters. You can't have a demon and the Holy Spirit. And so we know that. But we, what we do see is that Satan, demons, active in the non-Christian world. And that might be an opposition and it might attack. But don't run. Don't be afraid. You have Christ. As you labor, he's your king. He's your authority. And so as a laborer, your primary role is to share. Share all the things he's done. Just Think of through all the things you can share just from the nine chapters of Matthew. He controls nature. He forgives sin. He heals. He loves. He knows all things. He knows your thoughts. He knows the future. You also know he's given you the Holy Spirit, your helper. He's given you a new heart. Okay. And so now this is where I think sometimes as Christians, we get a little confused. I want you to catch this. I want you to catch this. I think we fall in love with the Pauls of the world. Paul was once Saul, right? He murdered Christians. Jesus meets him on the road, changes him, gives him a new heart and a new spirit. And you're like, now that's a testimony. That's a testimony you go tell people, I've been changed. Jesus changed me. I can share that. And that's true and that's great. But then there's this other part of the church that's like, but I've been raised a Christian. I can't do anything. I don't have this amazing story. I can't be used, I can't share, I can't be a laborer. Okay, if you think that, you've either A, never followed Jesus, B, aren't reading your Bible, or C, you're not saved. Okay? Because you're making sin about killing people and about being addicted to drugs. I mean, think about what you're saying. Do you need to do heroin to have a good testimony? That's not a trick question. Yeah? I, I, I take this serious. Is what you want to teach your kids, you have a bad testimony, so go, so go get a good one. Go get one that you can share and be proud of. Yeah, this is what I mean by misunderstanding or not following. Matthew 5, Jesus tells them, you've heard it said, meaning you've heard that this is a sin, but I tell you actually this is the sin. You have heard physical violence, physical murder. I tell you, murder starts in the heart through hatred. You have heard physical adultery. I tell you, lust in the heart, spiritual adultery. You look through the Sermon on the Mount. We all fail miserably, miserably. There is a story there. So when you think of your testimony, think of it like this. If you've only known Jesus your whole life, A, praise God, okay? But B, 
what would you be like without him? Think of the sin in your life, because we still sin, and amplify that sin times a thousand, hundred thousand, million times worse. If you're an angry person as a Christian, your anger would be exponentially worse without the restraining of the Holy Spirit and the reminder of God's word that's a deposit in your heart. If you're a jealous person, infinitely worse. Fear, infinitely worse. If you have an addiction, infinitely worse. It would be unrestrained, unchecked by the Holy Spirit. That'd be bad, wouldn't it? It's not just what you're saved from, right? It's what you're saved, what could have been. It's not just the past, it's also the future. You're not just saved to heaven, you're saved from hell. And you're saved from hell because there's behavior that would have yielded and earned that decision. You know, I tried to think through that in my own life. You know, there's a lot of flaws to pick from, but the one that kind of just God brought to my mind was, you know, I, I, I loathe failure. I just, I do. I really don't like it. And that seems like a good thing, but it, it can be really bad because I was thinking if I didn't have God's grace in my life, two things. I'd either be so afraid to fail, I'd be paralyzed and be a deadbeat, or I'd be so driven, I'd never care about anybody because I'd be so convinced I needed to keep working and keep working and keep working and not failing. Both extremes are terrible. Okay? And I praise God that I understand grace and that you can fail and that God forgives. Without the Holy Spirit and God's word and following Jesus, either extreme is a place I never want to know. Okay? If you're raised in the church, you need to praise God that you have no clue what it's like to live with the guilt of Paul for murdering Christians. You have no clue what it's like to not have a savior. You have no clue what it's like to wonder, is there a heaven? Will I go to heaven? You know Christ. You know heaven. You know you're not alone. These are feelings that you will never know because of Christ. They might be there for a season. They might be there, but they were never your reality. That's a testimony, isn't it? That's not a trick question. That's a testimony. That is an absolute testimony. Because of Jesus, it could have been like this. And because of Jesus, I'll never know this. And because of Jesus, heaven is my home. Okay, let, me, let me put it a different way. We share good news, end of story. And we share bad news. But right now, if something breaks on Fox News, you're gonna share it to the first 10 people you can. Oh my gosh, look at this. Right, because you wanna share extraordinary things, amazing things, controversial things, really bad things. If certain stores sell certain things in a certain way, you tell people, don't go there. It's dangerous. Now think about the correlation. Jesus is the only way to God. My sins are forgiven. No, I shouldn't share that. Hell is a bad place and you're gonna go there. You shouldn't go there. No, I won't share that either. But I'll say, don't go to this store and don't listen to this news channel, and don't vote for this party. See, if you're not willing to share, you haven't been following, or you haven't been changed.
Because the natural correlation is, if you've met Jesus, you've been changed and you share. Look at each text in the Bible, Matthew. They share, they tell, they share, they tell. Why? Because they've never seen anything like Jesus. And that is true for us. There is no one like Jesus. And if you have met him, you share him. That is what it means to be a laborer. And this is what the disciples are being prepared for. Matthew chapter 10 is gonna come and he's gonna say, I've given you my authority, go. Tell them who I am. Tell them what I've done. Tell them how I've loved you and changed you. Tell them how I am the God, son of God from the Old Testament. I am the king. I am the good shepherd. I am, I am, and I am over and over again. Go tell them, go tell them, go tell them. Now that seems daunting. I get it. But here's what you have to know. A laborer is to share. The laborer doesn't have to convert. It's not the job of the laborer. Read 1 Corinthians. Paul says, I water. Apollo's plants. God causes the growth. When you share what God's done in your life, you're either watering or you're planting. That's all you need to do as a laborer in the harvest. And Jesus says that the harvest is plentiful. It's plentiful. It's everywhere. There's, there's plenty of enough people to be saved. And what you need to do is share what you've learned, disciple, by following Jesus and why you believe, actively follow Jesus. That's the role. That's the goal. And it's, it's within us to share great news and bad news. It's just no different. If right now I told you guys how to lose 10 pounds in 10 minutes, you'd share it with everybody you know. If I told you how to save $5,000 in five minutes, you'd share it with everybody you know. But how to get to heaven and not go to hell. Hell's the bad place, heaven's the good place. Sharing the bad news, sharing the good news. That's why it's so important to get back to my beginning point here of what the gypsy pastor got at. So important to know what it means to be a citizen of heaven. Part of knowing that is knowing how God has changed you. How has he changed you? And if you don't have that story as clear, think through. How has he protected me from becoming something else? Here's something we have to understand as a laborer. If you don't teach your kids that they have a beautiful testimony as a Christian, then you are teaching them to go find a beautiful testimony. You're doing something so horrible, they can be proud of it, that Jesus forgave it. Is that the message we want to send? Absolutely not. It is absolutely beautiful that they will never know the pain and suffering that comes through the addictions and through the hard-fought failures and losses of not following Jesus for many years. That's a pain you don't ever want them to know. True? Then teach them to celebrate that they're saved from that pain, that they'll never know that pain because they know Christ the King, the Savior, and the Good Shepherd. The one who tells them how to live so they never need to know how to be lost. 
the one that heals their wounds so they need to, don't ever need to go to a false doctor, the one that prepares a place for them so they never need to be alone. They need to celebrate that Jesus. And we need to quit being embarrassed that you were raised in church and God saved you and loved you and saved you from that. But as you follow, you'll see some people are Paul. They were murderers. Other people are gonna be raised in the church. Either way, you celebrate Christ because you're both saved from hell only because of Jesus. The testimony is the same. We just romanticize one and demoralize the other. But what we're really doing is lifting us up and bringing Christ down. I want you to think about this. Would you go share with all your friends how you paid $200 to go to a doctor that gave you a Band-Aid? No, you wouldn't. Why? Because you could have done that yourself. You overpaid and he underdelivered. You're like, I could do that myself. I, don't, I would never share that. But if you have heart surgery and they said, you're a dead man walking and you should be dead. And if we don't operate right now, you're gonna die. And all of a sudden they give you a new heart and you come out alive. Like, I could have never done that. You, sell that. you tell that story, you celebrate that story and you're so grateful to the doctor. That's why it's important. Because if you think you could do it yourself, you won't share and the fact that you were raised in the church doesn't mean you shouldn't share. You were still the one given a new heart, given the Holy Spirit, saved, purchased by the blood of Jesus. You are still a diseased sheep that Christ picked up, put back together, pulled in line and said, follow me, I'm gonna show you the way. And then sends out and says, go labor, go labor, go labor, because the harvest is deep just plentiful. There are more people who need to be forgiven, loved, redeemed, know that heaven can be their home. Forgiveness is available. These are the truths they need. You've believed, you've followed, now go. Those are all the pieces we have to understand to live and act as a citizen of heaven. Some questions for us to think about. First question, why does Jesus tell the blind men not to share what he had done? Because if you don't look at it in context, it can be confusing. It's because God has perfect timing. And if God is saying no, you're not alone. And I think sometimes we get frustrated because God's not working in our timing. But part of following him is trusting his timing, trusting his character, trusting his work. And so we wanna be encouraged from this passage that God will keep his word. Jesus is the king and the king is coming back and he will rule and justice will be had. You don't need to worry about it. If you're struggling with his timing, you're not alone and his timing is better. Two, what is an area in your life that is hard for you to trust God's timing? It could be the political nature that we live in, it could be the finances, it could be your marriage, it could be your kids. You're like, why isn't this happening now? You know, I think often when you're, when you're single, you're like, God's not working fast enough to bring me a spouse. And then when you have kids, you're like, whoa, God, now you're acting too fast, right? In our mind, God's always too slow or too fast. And so in what area of your life do you're like, whoa, 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 God, slow down, or whoa, whoa, God, speed up, come on, come on, come on, and say, no, 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 I need to trust the Lord with, I need to trust him. 
He's the king. He knows better. He's the shepherd. He cares. He's the son of God. He's able. Okay? Those are, those are our, that's why it's so important. Who is he? Who does he say he is? You follow, you learn, you apply. Okay, four. Oh, no, three. Who is one person you can pray for and share the gospel with? This is what's so important about verse 38. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. So you're always to be thinking, who doesn't know Christ? And I'm gonna pray that me and someone else might labor on their behalf. And the easiest way to remember that there's people that need Jesus is to remember how you need Jesus. To be ever reminded of your sinfulness. Uh, a way I try to rem- remember it is, I mean, think through it like this. You were dead in sin, and now you've been made alive in Christ, and you're still this terrible. You can laugh. It's okay, right? Like, it's true. We still sin. We still sin. So there's plenty, why am I saying? There's plenty of opportunity for us to realize we still need Jesus. And if we don't realize that we're not looking at our sin honestly, and we think more highly of ourselves than we ought, and we're, we're diminishing the work of Christ, somehow thinking that we could do what he did. And the reality is we never could and never can do what he did. Ever present, our sinfulness, his greatness, his love. Oh man, other people need that love. Other people need that forgiveness. They work hand in hand. That's why after you follow and you've seen these things, you've seen Jesus, you've seen your sinfulness, you've seen him love you and protect you and, and, and care for you. Now you can go share that. And so we need to have that present in our mind. That's why he's saying, pray for this. You should always be praying for lost people and pray that God would send someone to water and someone to plant and that God would cause the growth and then trust him for the details, trust him for the process, trust him for the final outcome. Four, do you struggle more to accept Jesus as a king to obey or that you cannot be saved without Jesus? Um, to flesh that out a little bit more, each time you come in the book of Matthew, he's gonna be introducing like different titles for Christ. He's a king, he's a savior, he's a shepherd, he's the bread of life, he's the living water. All of these help us understand him in a way that we need, that we struggle with. Some of you are rule followers. You're like, I understand he's the king, he makes the rules. But maybe where you struggle is that he actually loves you that you're forgivable, that he would purchase you? Or, or on the other side, maybe you think you're a better king. You could make the world a lot better if God just listened to you. There's a title that you struggle with. And, and as you read the gospels, you're seeing the disciples become more and more familiar with each title. More and more, they're understanding, oh, he's fully God, fully man, the king the shepherd, the savior, the son of God. And he seemed to put it all together. That's us too. That's us too. We're putting it all together. It's part of following. And then that helps us labor. Last question. What does it look like to be a laborer amongst the harvest? And start thinking through that. How has God worked in me? What has God done? And how can I spread his fame through all the districts? It's essentially what they've done. How can I share all he's done? So working through knowing the work God's done in your life 
the work you, you've seen him do in the scriptures, in the, in, in the work of other believers, and then sharing that and, and being ready to share that and praying actively for that. See, the reality is we can labor because there's much to labor for because Christ did more than we could ever repay him. Amen? Let's pray. God, we love you. We praise you and we thank you. Uh, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for Jesus. Uh, we thank you that we get to be laborers in, in the vineyard, in the harvest. Uh, we pray that you uh, would give us an excitement and a passion and just uh, gratefulness that we get to be a part of it, that there's a grace we don't deserve, that there was mercy we don't deserve, a savior we don't deserve. We would cherish that and share that with all that we encounter. Whether it's testifying to Christians about your greatness or telling non-Christians that we would just shout it out for your goodness and greatness. Pray you'd lead us and guide us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So uh, at LBC, we take communion twice a month uh, as part of the you know, scriptural command to remember you know, when we gather the work that Jesus did, that, that work on the cross. And uh, as we remember, what are we remembering? We're remembering his body broken on the cross, right? His, his body pierced, blood poured out. And so that first part is the bread. You wanna open that first, right? So that way you don't spill the juice. Then open the juice, which represents the blood poured out on our behalf. Um, if you're not a Christian, this isn't something for you to partake in because you um, haven't accepted Jesus as the payment for your sins. And so we'd ask that you would let, you know, let that pass or not partake, but maybe, you know, open up to Matthew, read through Matthew 5, pray, and, you know, see, do you see yourself as a sinner that needs a savior? But if you're a Christian, you're a Christian, you're remembering the work of the Lord. Here's, maybe to think of this a little differently, I want to challenge you is your greatest testimony will always start with communion. Your greatest testimony starts right now. Why do I say that? Because it's an opportunity for you to actually dig deep into the sinfulness of your own heart and your own thoughts and your own mind. Acknowledge that sin before the Lord and realize that that sin is forgiven. That's a testimony. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. This is what I've been forgiven of. This is what I've been saved to, saved from. Communion is that constant reminder of the glorious work of Christ that's worth sharing with everybody. Yeah, that's why Corinthians tells us to examine the heart. Because when we just look at a surface level, you know, I don't doubt there's a lot of mature Christians in this audience and maybe, you know, you're not, you know, very harmful with your outward actions. Um, but the Bible is very clear. Read the Sermon on the Mount. That sin just isn't outward, it's also inward. That we commit murder in our heart through hate and adultery, through lust in the heart and envy and fear and, and doubt and jealousy and all of these things in the heart. Selfishness in the heart. Spitefulness and vengeance and gossip and malice. It doesn't just have to be outward, it can be inward. And those are things we commit against Christ. And when you plumb the depths of your heart and realize you commit those acts, 
you also then see that you're forgiven of those acts by the blood of Jesus, the payment of Jesus on the cross. And that should bring a gratefulness in your heart that is worth celebrating, which we'll do in worship, and sharing, which you'll get a chance to do when you leave. Communion is the very opportunity to create a testimony every time you partake. If there's nothing we're short on, it's sins. And those sins are forgiven, and it should be celebrated that they're forgiven. And so after you pray and walk through that, John's gonna lead us in some worship and we're just gonna thank Jesus for his payment and forgiveness. Now, if you have children with you, it's a great opportunity to teach them how to confess sin and then how to celebrate that Christ forgave that sin and that you need to trust him more and follow him more and love him more each day and then show them how to celebrate Jesus through singing with your heart. That these are truths that just we can't, communicate enough. So I'm gonna pray, and then uh, you can get free to take this in your own time. Dear Jesus, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for dying on the cross for our sins. Uh, it's our great prayer that we would celebrate you wholly and fully, that we would just look at the depths of our heart and see the sin that is there and acknowledge that and confess that to you and praise you that it, it could be so much worse but you save us and you love us and you pay for us. We would celebrate you with full hearts, with glad hearts, and then sing to you in great celebration for the work of Jesus. We thank you for loving us when we don't deserve it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. <laughs>